0: as well as our local station board. A full-year membership to WBAI and the Pacifica Network is $25 or more. Please call 212-209-2950 to renew your membership or to become a new member to be eligible to vote in the upcoming referendum. Again, that phone number is 212-209-2950. You can also go to our donations website, give to wbai.org and pledge that way many thanks this is listener sponsored locally controlled wbai new york
1: and stay tuned for driving forces which is coming up in mere seconds and i just wanted to remind people again and reiterate what was said that uh for those people who want to donate to this radio station and continue to become members or be members for the first time the number to call to do that is now 212-209-2950 212-209-2950 that is the number to call to show your support to a radio station that provides you a new uh, unique perspective of the world since 1960 212-209-2950 and for those longtime listeners that new number happens to be the old number, so we're bringing it back. It's like retro. Yeah, that's like We're bringing, we're bringing, you know, things that are so out of date it's back in style. That's what we're doing here at WBAI. We're making it hip again. Two one two two zero nine two nine five zero is the number. Okay, enough of that. It's one minute past five p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces coming up.
2: Welcome back to WBAI. This is Driving Forces, your weekly dose of politics and policy, where we bring you the conversations with the newsmakers and the newsbreakers, the experts and the analysts and the journalists and the people they cover who often have a lot to say. I'm your weekly co-host, Jeff Simmons. As always, I am joined by my good friend and co-host, ace journalist, Celeste Katz-Marston. Hey, Jeff, great to be
3: with you. As always, we have a big show lined up for today.
2: We do. And as Celeste knows, we always talk uh, for our listeners. Celeste and I always talk a little before the show. I'm worked up about quite a number of things today. I will try to uh, temper any of that anger uh, about what I see in the news often. But there's been a lot of troubling news this week.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, one thing we've been thinking about and talking about certainly is this continuing series of uh, anti-Asian crimes that we've been seeing, uh, some of them prosecuted as hate crimes. Obviously, the one we've been focusing on uh, a lot lately is the one that happened uh, just recently, a woman was attacked in broad daylight uh, right as she was walking to church on Sunday. Uh, there has been an arrest in that case where this woman was kicked And attacked, uh, unfortunately, in in the uh, in the sight of several building workers who did nothing, not only did nothing to help her, did not call 911, did not intervene, but closed the door. Between her and themselves as this attack was going on. So there has been an arrest in that case, but certainly a lot of questions in my mind and I'm sure in yours uh, about that particular response, but also with what is going on in the city uh, and elsewhere with these anti Asian assaults and what we can do about that.
2: And I agree. I mean, that's the thing that has just been troubling me when I saw that video and the man walk over to the front door and just close that door it was just appalling. It, it, I, I just hate seeing these things happen in our society.
3: Yeah, and uh, this is something that's been going on for quite a while. Uh, certainly uh, before. Uh, you know, in years past, but certainly ramped up with the emergence of the coronavirus pandemic and people sort of unfairly conflating being Asian with spreading the virus, causing the virus, uh, making people sick, things like that. And we've seen uh, and I've done some reporting on the number of incidents and the increase in reported incidents, but also, uh, you know, a lot of concerns about People who are not reporting incidents, people who may be afraid to report, people who think that these reports don't have any merit or maybe even worse, think that the reports wouldn't be taken seriously. And so it's not even worth bothering to to uh, notify anybody about them. Really scary stuff. And, you know, as a person myself of Asian descent, certainly uh, something I'm, I'm frankly very upset about.
2: And as Celeste mentioned, we do have a packed show for you. We already have our first guest on the line, and we're going to get to him in just a moment. But this topic that we're talking about will likely be one that comes up with our second guest later in the show. So stay with us. That guest is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who is running for mayor. Uh, one of the questions we obviously will have is, how will he address issues like this? How will he make this a safer city for all? Uh, so let's get to our first guest today, a fantastic writer, admittedly a neighbor of of mine. Uh, you may have read his pieces in New York Magazine, including ones about the New York City mayoral race, including one this past week about Andrew yang, uh, or another piece he had written, a wonderful piece about Congress member alexandria ocasio cortez i 'm talking about David Friedlander, who is a contributor to Politico magazine as well. He also writes for a variety of publications about the po- about politics, the arts, and new york city he 's an adjunct professor. At, at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, where he teaches politics and political theory. And he is frequently called on, uh, on to see cnn and msnbc and national radio programs to talk about current events he's got a new book out just this week called the aoc generation how millennials are seizing power and rewriting the rules of american politics and he's joining us now to talk about that book david friedlander welcome to wbai it's
4: great to be with you
2: so first off what do you mean when you say the aoc generation who are these people and what motivates them
4: yeah, uh that's a good question. I mean, I think that what you know, happened was you know, after the election of Trump in twenty sixteen, like it was such a sort of shock to the system, I think, for a lot of people. Um I don't know if you guys remember the sort of days and weeks afterwards, but you know, people it was like you know, it was like the country was heading into war or something if you lived in, you know, New York City and other big sort of coastal cities like that. And and, and um I think some of it was people were getting together and they were, like, talking and they were figuring out what to do. Um, and they were galvanizing the politics in a way that they hadn't been before because this kind of, like, unimaginable event happened. Um, and so, you know, and some of it was, was sort of drawing on some sort of force that had been building for, for quite a while, um, you know, back through the, the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign in 2016, uh, you know, back into sort of um, liberal disgust with some of the uh, Barack Obama approach to the financial crisis in sort of 2008 to 2012. Um, and so, you know, I think it's sort of, I mean, in answer to your question, I mean, I think it's sort of that's the kind of generation almost more than, uh, you know, any particular age cohort.
3: And David, uh, and by the way, it's great to hear your voice. Glad to have you yeah, with us you on well. the program. I know, right? Um, so, you know, in terms of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez specifically, you know, covering, uh, the, the midterms covering a lot of elections, you know, you see a bunch of younger people or people maybe who are first time candidates getting into these kind of contests. What was, uh, what is it about her or what was it about her at that time that really made her into the, the kind of phenomenon that she's become like her or not like her, you know, uh, support her politics or don't, but there's no question that she has really stood out in a lot of ways. What is it about her specifically that made that possible?
4: You know, I, it's, like it's that that sort of thing that you that you're you're asking about it's always like very hard to tell right I mean it's mm-hmm. like it's political charisma and like what that thing is and how it works um, is is a hard thing to know like if we knew it we could kind of maybe like bottle it and people would buy it or whatever but but it's you know it's hard to know what it is specifically about her I think you know so last night I was like You've interviewed candidates running for office before. You know, when they're kind of just starting out, they haven't won anything, and, and they don't have that kind of, like, aura of like power and accomplishment behind them. And, and often you're just like – I'm sure you've had the experience where you're just like, get me out of this interview. This person doesn't know anything. Like, I'm so bored. They seem so ill-prepared. And I remember when I interviewed her when she was just sort of campaigning for the seat, it, and I thought, you know, chance she was going to win. But she just seemed really impressive, like, from the start. And clear that this was somebody within minutes of being her who was kind of, like, going places. I mean, she, she really knew kind of what she was talking about. She, like, answered in complete sentences and, 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 and attacked the question, um, you know, attacked her opponent, talked of her own experiences, her own life's experiences. Um, it, was just, it, was just, it was just really rare. And it seemed like after she won, somehow the sort of nation in the world – like, picked up on that. And, you know, I think it, you're, you're right. It's like, there were kind of two sides of it that created this phenomenon because it was, um, it's both people that love her, that like think she speaks for them or speaks for generation. And it was this counterforce of people that don't like her and uh, that, you know, also think she speaks for generation, but, but kind of in a negative way. I mean, there's a statistic, uh, in the book where it's like there was a period where Fox News and Fox Business were talking about Ocasio Cortez like 73 times a day, so three times an hour they would mention her um, on on their networks. Um, so yeah, I think I think that sort of had a lot to do with it.
3: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point you make about the idea of, you know, look, as long as they spelled her name, right? I mean, you know, she's out there, she's getting the attention, uh, she's, <clears throat> you know, she sort of makes herself a foil that way, but going back to something else you said was uh, interesting to me as well, which is, you know, I know exactly that situation that you're talking about, and it, it must be interesting as well from the candidate side, where it's like, well, nobody will know you unless you get interviewed, but, if you never get interviewed, how will any you know? How will anybody know you? It's sort of that thing like, why should we bother with this person? And then you saw this big scramble afterwards where people were like, "Oh, we missed it." So mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. interesting that you you picked up on on uh, that there was there was some there there at the time.
4: Yeah, I mean, I was trying to get editors all over the place to like do a story about this person because I thought like she was. I mean, this was before you know she was just running because. It seemed like it was this really interesting dynamic because, you know, if you recall that the incumbent congressman, Joe Crowley, he was the sort of first, highest ranking member of the House, the Democratic office in the House. And everyone was thinking he was going to be the next speaker, like Pelosi would retire, Crowley would take his place. But then he had this like problem at home, which was this like young uh, Latin woman in this very diverse district in which Crowley was like increasingly out of step, right? And so I I just thought there was this, like, from a sort of realistic storytelling perspective, this, like, great story going on uh, where, like, he would have to do things like, if you recall, I think he, like, got arrested protesting Trump's immigration policies, things that he wouldn't have done anyway. And it was kind of having this impact on the sort of national policy conversation because he had this home, you know, in his district problem. Um, but it was all it all just seemed like such a long shot that it, like uh, you know, editors were like, Why would why are we ever write about this race? It's just an obscure person running against them kind of thing.
2: So, David, we should note uh that neither AOC or her office participated in the book, though you had interviewed her several times before, uh, for New York magazine. Did they give you a reason?
4: Um I mean they practically hung up on me when I called to tell them about the book. Um uh you know, they're they're not the I think it's gotten better. Uh her sort of core staff around her at the time were uh not the easiest people ever to work with. Um and I think that at the time she was just so famous and there were so many requests for her. Um that the closest I ever got to a reason was something like that. I mean I think they said, Oh, you're like the tenth person to inquire about this kind of thing. Um, and, uh, so I think, so that was probably part of it. Um, I had written a piece for Politico magazine soon after she was elected that, um, talked about one thing that she sort of heralded in the American politics in a way that framing it in a way that they really did not like, um, which may have had something to do with it as well. Uh, which was that, you know, it was really like, um, she was her election was due to the fact that a lot of like middle class white people got priced out of Brooklyn and moved to Queens and voted for her. Um and, and I they yeah, go ahead.
2: And what's interesting, David, is we're talking a lot about her, but, you know, the book is about also the millennials and how they're seizing mm-hmm. power and rewriting the rules of American politics. So talk a little about just even, it's about being in, you know, in the right place at the right time. And also for her, also talking about issues that resonated with people. And there were a number of organizations or groups that saw the potential in her that you talk about throughout the book. Uh, just tell our listeners a little about that.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, we can kind of, we have this tendency to look at politics as being, you know, about these singular individuals and how they kind of conquer the world or the country or whatever. And, you know, and it's often not like that. It's all of these people meeting together in living rooms, having conversations, organizing, and that she's sort of like a product of, of all of that. Um, and, And she gave that sort of brief and, and, controversial speech at the Democratic Convention, she talked talk about that. But that's really what the book was about, because her her sort of journey to Congress and then to fame, she kind of passed through in various ways all of these people that were doing a lot of sort of work on the ground uh, around her, and she kind of just kind of captured a lot of her energy. Um, so it's groups like the Democratic Socialists of America, who um, I think I I, I, forget, I forget this now, um, something like their 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 membership practically doubled overnight after Trump's election. I mean, it was the, the biggest uh, surge of support that this organization that was like forty years old had ever seen uh, in one day. Um, and groups like Justice Democrats, which kind of grew out of the um, Sanders campaign and wanted to um, and, 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 and and you know and wanted to sort of move the Democratic Party to the left, and, and then there's a sort of old phalanx of other entities, like there's, you know, the media uh, companies and, and, and YouTube cable channels and radio and magazines and, and all of this kind of explosion of activity that was happening uh, and that, that she really benefited from. <laughs>
3: So, and we are, in case you're just joining us, this is Driving Forces here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're speaking to David Friedlander. He is out with a brand new book called The AOC Generation, How Millennials Are Seizing Power and Rewriting the Rules of American Politics. So, David, certainly, you know, we, we all agree here that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been a phenomenon as a, a political candidate. Uh, as a member of Congress, is sort of an aspirational figure, I think, to a lot of young people. But, you know, the the fact remains, you know, in a practical way, she's still kind of a, you know, freshman backbencher. Uh, you know, we now have a president who is a Democrat, but is, I would not say, you know, so far off the uh, the left of the spectrum that he's in a freefall there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, f- relatively moderate compared to the kind of politics espoused by uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, you know, what is the the real outcome going to look like here in the next few years as far as the agenda that she and people like her are pushing versus what they will actually get uh, out of Congress here?
4: Yeah, I mean, I sort of always loathe to make predictions because who, who would have thought we were like in this place where we were? I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting if you're a on sort of left flank of the Democratic Party, I mean, you'd have to kind of be happy in a way with what's happened because I mean, Joe Biden is sort of governing like FDR, right. In this first, we're well, only a few months in, but, but I mean, it seems as if that kind of left project is sort of winning in a lot of ways, even as it's like totally not winning. Um, you know, as so I think, as, as, you mentioned, I mean, Biden was like the, the centermost candidate in the field. Right. And he won like, kind of easily, over 19 or so people who are kind of rushing to the left. But then once in office, he sort of embraces these ideas to meet the moment. And so I think it's this, like, it's this very odd moment in a way right now where you have, like, Ocasio-Cortez's ideas winning the day, even as the sort of political movement, as you were saying, Celeste, so seems like increasingly irrelevant, frankly.
2: And so, David, we've got just about a minute left. I know our time is short today because we've got a packed show. If people uh, – first of all, what else are you working on? And if people want to learn more about you and the book, where should they go?
4: Uh, well, I'm, I, I'm uh, Friedlander, uh, at Friedlander on Twitter, uh, website, Um And, uh, you know, all my sort of – all my info is there. Um, right now, I'm, well, I'm sort of covering the mayor's race uh, – pretty closely for New York magazine. Um, although that got redirected it's sort of to covering Andrew Cuomo um, over the last two months. I think I'm back on the mayor's race now. Um, and so and so that's that sort of hit, and you know, trying to sort of find my way into the sort of national scene as as, as Joe Biden, you know, settles in down in D C.
2: David Friedlander, I'd like to thank you for joining us here today to talk about your book by Beacon Press, The AOC Generation, How Millennials Are Seizing Power and Rewriting the Rules of American Politics. Thank you so much for joining Celeste and me today.
4: Thanks for having me, guys. This is great.
2: So, you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, and we are streaming at WBAI.org. We're your hosts, Jeff Simmons, that's me, and Celeste Katz-Marston. That's me. And if you are just tuning in, stay with
3: us. Don't touch that dial if you still have a dial. Uh, coming up next is our conversation with uh, a man who we should disclose is a longtime supporter of WBAI. He has uh, joined the station uh, on the steps of City Hall when uh, we were shut down briefly uh, in a dispute in 2019 uh, advocating for uh, Pacifica to keep us on the air. Uh, this is, of course, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. He is nearly uh, one of nearly two dozen people uh, trying to succeed Mayor Bill de Blasio, become the next mayor of New York, uh, born in Brownsville, Brooklyn. He's a former New York City police officer, uh, climbed the ranks to serve as captain until his retirement. He uh, was New York State Senator, which is when I first met him, served four terms, uh, co-founder of 100 Blacks in law enforcement. And in 2013, he became the first person of color to serve as borough president president of Brooklyn. He's coming up to the end of his second four-year term, and now he has his eyes on City Hall. He will be joining us here uh, shortly, but, uh, you know, obviously the mayor's race, as uh, David Friedlander just mentioned, is uh, pretty rough and tumble. Lots going on, but there are a few complications, including one that, uh, Jeff has brought up, which I think is very interesting, which has to do with how ranked choice voting will affect, uh, how this, this, uh, this next election is gonna work.
2: Yeah, I mean, what I'm seeing very locally in some of these campaigns, uh, especially for city council, is how candidates are all being, for the most part, they're being gracious towards one another because you want that second vote. You want, if Celeste is not your first choice, I, Jeff, want you to vote for me as your second choice when you're ranking us on the ballots. And so we <laughs> see that on a lot of local levels Uh but, you know, when it comes to the mayor's race, we are seeing more sparring when it comes to the candidates, particularly between uh, Eric Adams and uh, and Andrew Yang. Yang, poll after poll recently, has come across as the front runner. But Eric Adams is also perceived as one of the uh, top tier candidates in this race so far.
3: Yeah, it, it's interesting and, you know, I, I'd be interested in looking at more of the polling numbers as far as Andrew Yang. I mean, there's, there's always an interesting sort of, uh, you know, uh, temperature to be taken in these kinds of contests about are people really in the mood for something that's new and completely different from what they have, as was the case when uh, Mayor Bloomberg was leaving office? Or do people want to go with somebody they know, somebody that, uh, you know, their leadership is familiar to the public? Uh, maybe they want somebody who's from their neck of the woods. Maybe they want somebody who shares their specific interests on a particular social issue, economic issue. Maybe it's schools. Maybe it's the environment. Environment, you know, all those kinds of things. So all that stuff comes into play. But, you know, traditionally, uh, Democratic uh, primaries for mayor in New York City have been extremely, extremely aggressive because basically that's, uh, you know, that's where the, the contest gets decided. Uh, we, we have had some Republican mayors or Republic mayors who ran on a Republican ticket, I should say. Uh, but generally, you know, in the... Uh, uh, recent memory there's been uh, the democratic primary for mayor has been where it is at and so without further ado we are uh, glad to welcome uh, brooklyn borough president and candidate for mayor eric adams to the program welcome
2: how are you
5: thank you so much for allowing me to come on and engage in the conversation
3: Yep. Glad that you could join us. I know you have a busy schedule. So we will uh, we will keep it bright and tight here. Um, you know, so basically, this is something that uh, came up earlier this week, some coverage. You know, this race for mayor is seeing the most people of color uh, pursuing this, uh, the top office here in the city. It's now uh, more than three decades after the election of David Dinkins. Are Are we ready to elect another person of color to run New York City?
5: Uh, I believe we are, Uh, and I think it's a combination of not only competency uh, that we are going to need, but also character. Uh, Oftentimes we overlook uh, who is the person, uh, what have they uh, gone through that would allow them to understand what everyday New Yorkers are going through. And that is what my life has been, and I'm excited that everyday New Yorkers of all different ethnicities. Are saying we need someone that understands us and who uh, has lived uh, the life that we are living now to help us through it.
2: You know what's so interesting, and it's great to have you uh, back on the show, Borough President. Is uh, you know you and me and Celeste were immersed in politics. We follow what's going on, but. Uh, a poll came out last week that had one key t- takeaway: that about fifty percent of likely Democratic voters had no idea at this point who they would vote for in this election, and yet were less than three months away from the from the primary. So then, how do you, considered one of the front runners here, continue that momentum that you have and turn those undecideds into decideds?
5: Uh, it, it's it's about really getting your message out and having it's unfortunate that uh you need to have the money to do that i am really disappointed in our national and local campaign system i'm the, i am the only candidate that continues to call for 100 percent campaign finance system this would allow all new yorkers to get their message out in an equal way yes i raised the most money but i would give every penny back if we would give everyone the same dollar amount to get their message out. Now we're going to see in May and June those who have the most money, they're going to have the better opportunity to get their message out. I have a solid message. I have a solid uh, background of you know my years of commitment. I am not new to New Yorkers uh, people know who I am. they have the opportunity and I hear it all the time. Eric, I don't agree with everything you do, but I agree with your dedication and commitment you have shown to the city. And that is what it's going to take to get that the other 50 percent over the line. And we're going to do that.
3: You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York. We are speaking with Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, candidate for mayor of New York City. And Borough President, uh, the mayor recently uh, unveiled some proposals to reform the police department. You know, some changes to the patrol guide, uh, issues with body camera footage. more information about disciplinary actions against officers and so on. So as a former police officer, we're wondering, you know, what do you think of those proposals and what would be your own sort of top priorities in terms of uh, what comes next for the NYPD?
5: I believe the mayor has continued to move this police department uh, in the right direction. It is imperative that the next mayor of Pull and move the police department uh, even further. And there's several things I would do right away. Uh, one, we need to diversify the rank and file. Over 30% of our officers reside uh, outside the city of New York. That's not acceptable. Uh, not only for police practices, but also economics. Our tax dollars should not be spent uh, in other jurisdictions. So I would promote uh, my peace officers into the police department after two years of service and they uh, have performed in an excellent way. Those are the hospital police, the homeless service police, the school safety agents, all those peace officers. I will promote them. Why is that important? Over 85% of them are women and uh, South Asian and people of color. It would diversify our ranks. The second, the most significant thing we can do is really allow local communities, precinct leaders to interview and choose their police precinct commander. That is one of the most powerful positions you could have in the city. No one looks at it. No one knows that a precinct commander controls a 300-plus person team. He determines the energy of that uh, police precinct, and I would allow community leaders to have an input on who their precinct commander uh, is going to be. Third, and most importantly, uh, we will... Use our policing dollars more efficiently. We should not be spending $400 million a year on overtime while court cops are sitting in court waiting to testify on overtime when we can use Zoom or WebEx or some other technology, have them testify, get off the clock, and do a better job. And, and it's imperative that we really start holding police officers accountable that break the law and not wait a long period of time to remove them from the department, but expedite the trial. Those who are guilty, they should be immediately moved so they don't destroy the energy of what policing is supposed to be about in this city.
2: So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my co-host, Celeste Katz, and we're talking with Brooklyn Borough President and Mayoral Candidate Eric Adams. If you are a listener and you have a moment during the show and you like what you're hearing, please make sure to call our donation line at 212-209-2950. It's a new number. It's the old number back to becoming the new number, 212 209 two nine five zero borough president you mentioned that about community involvement in choosing precinct commanders when it comes to the police commissioner there's this discussion too do you think the city council should pick the next police commissioner
5: no i think they should they should do advice as we used to do in the state senate uh they should bring in that police police commissioner they should interview him Uh, they should uh make and give advice on what their thoughts are or should this person fit. But you want the ultimate decision to be the mayor. The mayor should be held accountable and voted in or out of office based on the actions of the, of the police department. Uh, the accountability, uh, I believe strongly that the mayor must be held accountable for the right energy of the police department and to keep our city safe. And uh, there's, there, there, there is knowledge uh, that the mayor will have on what is needed in a police commissioner. Everything from the right energy in our city to, to dealing with terrorism, to dealing with uh, public safety. And he knows the combination of things uh, that are needed. And we don't want to politicize that position of policing because, uh, let me tell you, Public safety is a prerequisite to prosperity, and we can have safety and justice at the same time, and that mayor must make that decision.
3: Speaking about uh, public safety, maybe personal safety, just wanted to uh, ask real quickly. Uh, you said in an interview uh, a little over a year ago, I think, that you personally, you carry a gun, uh, that you would not need a security detail as mayor, that you would uh, be responsible for your own security. Uh, is that still true? And what message does that send to the public, do you think?
5: Well, first, I am, a, uh, I am licensed to carry a firearm. Uh, anywhere in the state of New York. Many people don't know that even upon retirement, uh, you're still licensed to carry a firearm. I don't carry now. And the conversation was, if I decide I want to carry, because of a dangerous environment, it could be a threat against my life or going somewhere where there's a potential criminal act, Uh, if I choose to do so, I would do so. I don't carry now, even when I travel by myself. But I'm a big believer... How do I tell a grandmother uh, the city is safe if I move around the city with five to six different people as a security detail? I believe let's be a symbol of how safe our city is. Uh, there's no law that a mayor must have a security detail. Uh, there's no law that requires him uh, to move throughout the city with a team of people, uh, volunteers, uh, to carry out his initiative. And so many people were shocked for me to say, I don't see the purpose of needing large number of people to move through the city. I don't do it now. I never did it. And I feel our city is going to be safe under me. And the best symbol you can show of how much you believe in the safety of this city is as your mayor, get on the train, sit in the laundry man, walk the streets, walk through NYCHA, show how safe it is. If it's safe enough for me, then it's safe enough for the grandmother and the other family members of this city.
2: So, Borough President, we have a few, only a few minutes left. We have a few just quick uh, topics we wanted to bring up to just get some brief answers from you on. Should employers have the right to mandate that employees be vaccinated before they return to work?
5: That's, uh, the jury still out for me on that decision, particularly uh, with the first virus, uh, the first vaccine. Of that the, the first vaccine was, it was carried out in a unique way. And I want to be extremely careful and I really want to examine that. The Johnson vaccine uh, is a level of comfort. I believe they use uh, a actual a live virus when they produce it. Uh, so we need to really look at the science and I would lean towards the science. If the science states that it's safe to do so, we're going to have to move to a place uh, where we standardize uh, who's uh, allowed inside certain locations. But the jury's still out with me. I'm not 100 percent sure where I am on that because I want to respect all the conversations that people are having around, of, you know, should we mandate before people can come back to a place of employment?
3: And then just sort of relatedly, do you think that people who are incarcerated in city or in state correctional facilities in New York be required to be vaccinated? Should it be mandatory or should they have a choice?
5: Uh, I'm still at the same place with that. Uh, The mandatory required are strong terms. And I think we need to really deliberate on that and come to a full understanding. We have to weigh of public uh, health as well as uh, what we hold in this this country as the right to make decisions about your uh, personal uh, health as well. So I think we need a lot of deliberation uh, to come to a meeting of the minds and understanding of how this is going to be carried out
2: so we as we get ready, ready to wrap possibly. up as we get ready to wrap up there's one quick question uh if you were voting today who would you your second choice then be for mayor If we're ranking our votes who would be your second choice
4: uh my, my
5: first second and all the way down to the fifth choice would be eric adams you're not required to rank you're only required to vote i hope and i tell my my supporters rank Eric Adams, and I still feel that way.
2: Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, I want to thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz-Marston and myself here on WBAI today. It's great to have you back.
5: Thank you. Anytime. Take care.
3: You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, this is part of our, our 5 p.m. strip that we have throughout the week. We do a lot of uh, news, uh, politics, commentary, local, state and national. All the things that matter to you are great listeners. And uh, just a moment to say that, uh, as Jeff mentioned earlier, uh, we do have a new number. If you would like to show your support for this radio station, show your support for independent, non-commercial free speech radio programming, give us a call 212-209-2950 or check us out on the web, WBAI.org.
2: And one thing I really like that I'm encouraging you all to do is to go to the website, uh, to give to WBAI.org. Because it's much better looking now. Sorry, anyone who did the old one. But when you go to give to wbai.org, you will also see the type of premiums, the gifts you can get for certain donations. I was sc- scrolling through there today, and already I'm ready to uh, to make a donation for something after the show if someone hasn't already scooped it up. But go to give two, and that's the number two wbai.org. Celeste and I are also what are known as BAI buddies. We just have it on our credit card ten, fifteen, twenty dollars a month, you can really do whatever amount you 're comfortable with. We know times are not always uh, may not be great for everyone right now, but if you can just contribute a bit to support our non commercial non corporate uh, progressive radio station uh, you know moving ahead, this will help sustain us. this will help keep us providing you with a diverse array of programming. you know where else can you get celeste cats? This is the place. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is the place 212209 two nine five zero or just go to wbai.org and click ways to donate. You can check out the BAI buddy program. You can check out a number of premiums that we can offer to thank you for your support. Uh, you know, again, this is, uh, this is a very unique radio station. We try very hard to give voice to the community to cover real issues that matter to real New Yorkers. We have programs on arts, culture, politics, music, uh, Entertainment. We have, uh, you know, a really wide array of people, a lot of whom volunteer their time to bring you, uh, to bring you all these programs to keep WBAI on the air. We're Doing this for more than sixty years. Please show your support. WBAI or give us a call at our new number, which, as our engineer Reggie mentioned, is also the old number. 212 209 2950. 212 209 2950. Please give as generously as you can, but any amount will help us keep free speech, independent, non commercial radio alive in New York.
2: And I know we have a packed show today. Our final guest should be on in just a a few moments. Uh, One of the reasons we had reached out to have her on the show. Uh, was because of David Friedlander's book and talking about, you know, this movement that we've witnessed in the last few years after the name that shall not be mentioned uh, was elected <laughs> as our now former uh, president. I, I don't know if did that name even come up once on this show, by the way. So did far, I? not okay. so far.
3: I think I do not think so. Did wait, did Friedlander maybe bring it up? I don't think so. But uh so far, limited
2: mentions, of any. So with that, we're going to get to our final guest today uh, to talk about uh, one of those organizations that's making a difference in who we see in office and who we see working on those campaigns. So joining us now is Lauren Baer, a nationally recognized civic leader and the incoming managing partner at Arena Summit. She's an attorney and foreign policy expert. She served for six years as an official in the Obama administration, acting as a senior advisor to secretaries of state Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and to U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Samantha Power in 2018. She was the Democratic nominee for U.S. Congress in Florida's 18th district, and of note, while there, she was supported in her run through an ARENA fellowship. So now she's about to step into the, this new role as ARENA's managing partner next month and joins us today to discuss how ARENA is training a new generation of leaders and having an impact on campaigns and governments across our country. Lauren Baer, welcome to WBAI.
6: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Can you start off by telling us a little more about ARENA and the work that you do and what prompted ARENA to be founded?
6: Sure. So ARENA was founded in the aftermath of the 2016 election when so many people were frightened and appalled at the direction that our our country was headed and wanted to figure out what it was exactly that they could do. They wanted to figure out, if you will, how they could get into the arena. Uh, so it started as a convening to to get people together um, to talk about how they could be involved. And, and what grew out of that very quickly was a realization that a number of people were starting to think about running for office themselves. And so Arena grew from an organization that uh, hosted these convenings into one that has supported uh, more than 100 candidates uh, around the country ran, running for various offices um, and trained uh, more than 5,000 uh, staff members and volunteers uh, for those campaigns. It, it really attempts to provide uh, end, end-to-end support uh, for progressive campaigns from their inception till they cross the finish line. And it's, it's grown into a really incredible organization.
3: And uh, uh, first of all, welcome to the program, Lauren. It's, uh, it's nice Thanks. to speak with you. Um, I myself did have an opportunity to visit, uh, to sit in on um, uh, the Arena Summit. In This is going back a few years, but it was uh, a meetup in Nashville. And mm-hmm. uh, very, very interesting training. Talked to some people there. And I'm just wondering how some of these people came out. I remember uh, I spoke to a young lady named uh, Lauren Underwood. I believe at the time who was trying to figure out what to what office to run for someday. Uh, so just wondering if there are other stories like that where, uh, you know, people have gone through the training and gone on to, uh, to success at running for political office.
6: Yeah, we have, we have incredible stories of people who've gone through our trainings. Lauren Underwood, who you mentioned is one of them. She's a, a trained nurse and she had served in the Obama administration and, Returned, returned home to, uh, where she'd grown up in Illinois and, uh, you know, was, uh, felt the calling to, to run for, for office largely around healthcare issues. Um, it was a campaign that when she launched the, the political establishment said there was no chance of winning this race. Uh, and she flipped a long held Republican district, uh, narrowly won her re-elect, uh, in 2020 and is now serving, uh, her second term. Um, another great, uh, all-star from, uh, the arena world is Lena Hidalgo down in Texas, uh, who is the uh, the Harris County judge, uh, which is effectively the chief executive of the largest county in Texas. Uh, Lena also unseated a long-term Republican um, at the age of just 29, uh, now oversees a budget of uh, $4.3 billion annually um, and is affecting the lives of millions of people in her work. And these are just two of, of many stories uh, of people who... Felt like they could make a difference uh, by running for office, who are like the folks we've traditionally run. um, But, you know, at Arena, we saw something in them and thought that this is the kind of political talent uh, that we want to be cultivating in this day and age
3: you're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI. We are speaking to Lauren Beresh who is the uh an incoming managing partner at Arena Summit which trains people uh on how to engage in and run in uh progressive politics. And Lauren, just to follow up on that, something that's always interested me about the kind of work that Arena Summit does and that that other groups that are are kind of adjacent to it do is, you know, I think Uh, A lot of what I heard when I was at uh, arena summit was, you know, people trying to decide where to go or how to embark on, uh, a future in politics and uh, you know a lot of people are thinking "Oh, I'd like to be president someday or I'd like to be in the Senate I'd like to be in Congress but you know there was some attention paid to well have you thought about going back to your home state and running for uh, council running for uh, a county office running for uh, you know some sort of office like that um, I'm interested in, in what you think of uh, or what you hear from young people who want to start out in politics. Is that something you feel like people are willing to do or is that sort of like not exciting enough especially when you look at sort of meteoric rise of somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez we were discussing on the program earlier who was basically had no uh, no identity in politics uh, in electoral politics I should say and went on to be this very big rising star in Congress
6: well I would say to that is all oh, politics is really local. And I, and I think people are recognizing that you can have a huge impact on your community and on people's lives um, from local offices all the way on up to, to federal offices. Uh, but what I wanted to, to pick up on was, was something you said about people not knowing exactly what to do. Um, and, and that's something I understand firsthand from my experience um, as a candidate. You know, running for office is, is a confusing process. I can it can seem really scary. Um, You know, for me, I I served for six years at a very senior level in the Obama administration, and I still had no clue what to do when it came to launching a campaign, because the world of policy was very different than the world of politics. And what ARENA is attempting to do is demystify that process of running for office, and in doing so, open it up to more people, Um, And we're doing that not only in terms of the candidates we are recruiting, but also staff, because we found that if these candidates are going to win races, they need to recruit qualified staff and they need staff that's representative of the broad diversity of the communities that they're running in. So, you know, whether it's our Arena Academy, our other training program, the numerous tools we have in our our online toolbox, which is essentially campaign in a box, everything you need, need to know logistically to set up your campaign, what we're trying to do is make politics accessible to anyone, and through that process, change our leaders in our country from the local level on up
2: and you mentioned the arena academy, so i'm I'm really curious how did that wield some of the lessons that were learned from the right uh, to be able to apply to the academy
6: yeah, so our arena academy is our our staff training program it's a essentially a five-day boot camp where we take political novices and we train them to be everything from campaign managers to digital directors to finance directors on campaigns. And, you know, what that grew out of was was a couple of things. Uh, First, uh, feedback from our candidates that they had a really challenging time finding good staff, well-trained staff, and diverse staff. Um, Second, it came from people themselves. Uh, who wanted to be staffers, saying it was really hard to get into politics. And and the third thing that, that led to its rise was exactly what you mentioned, this realization that the right for decades has invested in building the infrastructure that they need to uh, run and win campaigns at every level. And, you know, in the Democratic Party, we seem to have this conversation every four years or so in the six months before a presidential election about how we need to start earlier, about how we need to invest in training organizers and other staff from the ground up and do it in the off-cycle years. Um, But the work hadn't been getting done. And so that's where uh, Arena Academy came in to step into that void, to try to uh, establish the political, the grassroots power, again, from the bottom up, um, that we would need to, to win. Um, you know, we know what all can't be done in a year, uh, but we're working on it. We just uh, trained 280 people a couple weekends ago, and we're planning to train more than 1500 more uh, before the 2022 election.
3: Well, that's interesting. I wanted to, I that was one thing I wanted to ask you about was this sort of the level of interest or or gauge the intensity of interest. I think at the time that I had uh, come and watched the proceedings myself, people were super motivated and kind of shell-shocked or horrified or, you know, fill in your, (laughs) you know, your word of choice there by uh, what was going on with the former president. I think one of the guest speakers at that session was actually the guy who, who wrote, or, you know, co-wrote and then went on to regret co-writing uh, The Art of the Deal um, mm-hmm. with the uh, with the former president. So now that he's out of the picture, pretty much, uh, do you feel like people sort of feel less that there's this huge foe that they have to vanquish, that things are okay-er, or do you feel like the intensity of the, the need to get involved and, and be in the arena is kind of uh, the same or greater? What's been
6: fascinating to us is that if anything, the need and the interest has grown since the 2020 elections. At this first training that I mentioned that we had a few weeks back, we had 280 slots, more than a 1,000 people applied for those slots. So we had to turn about 75% of people away. The demand is far outstripping our ability to supply it right now. And I think that's because people have become more engaged in the last four years. They realize uh, that Democrats hold a very narrow majority at the federal level. And at the state level, Republicans still control the vast majority of state houses. And the result of that is things like that terrible voter suppression bill we saw coming out of Georgia last week. And so people are are motivated. And, you know, they've seen uh, over the past, years, the the change that can really come when everyday citizens step into the arena, when they get involved, and uh, people want to continue moving things in the direction of of the better um, because, if anything, the the Trump years have taught us uh, that we can't take uh, our democracy for granted.
2: So, Lauren, we've got less than a minute left. Where can our listeners go, and in particular, anyone who's interested in becoming a candidate and working with you, if they'd like to learn more about ARENA?
6: Well, if you're interested in becoming a candidate or working on a campaign, please check us out online at arena.run. Or you can check us out on Twitter at Arena Summit. Uh, We would love to help you out on your political journey.
3: Lauren Baer of Arena Summit, thanks so much for joining us today here on WBAI. Thank
6: you so much for having me.
3: So we are coming into the stretch here. Of course, want to thank our engineer, Reggie, for another great show. Want to thank our guests, journalist David Friedlander, author of the new book, The AOC Generation, Brooklyn Borough President and candidate for mayor, Eric Adams. And as we heard just now, Lauren Baer of Arena Summit. Want to thank you, our readers, of course. You keep BAI on the air. And speaking of on the air, Jeff, what is on the horizon for Sunday?
2: Well, my friend, David Brand will be hosting City Watch this Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. His guests... New York City Council member Acosta Constantinidis, who's been on our show before. He'll be discussing why he suddenly announced his resignation from the New York City Council this week. He's going to leave his seat vacant until the end of this year, uh, and he'll explain why and what he's up to next. And then David will be joined by the former sanitation commissioner here in New York City, Catherine Garcia, who is another Mayor Candidate discussing her plans for the future of New York City. And before I wrap up, I just want to go back to the beginning of the show and what Celeste and I talked about. I'm going to use that MTA saying, if you see something, say something. If you see an incident, don't be a bystander. Do something about it. And even if it is just calling the police or trying to rally people to help someone who is being victimized, step up and do something. I don't want to see another video like that on TV or read another story, not just about someone being victimized, but about all the people standing around who are doing nothing. So please do something about it if you see something. On that note... Thank you for tuning in today to WBAI for Driving Forces with me and Celeste Marston. We will be back in two weeks. We are not on next week. There'll be special programming. Thanks again for keeping the dial on 99.5 FM. And stay tuned for the news with Paul DiRienzo.
0: a message from Pacifica Radio's National Election Supervisor. You will have the opportunity to vote in a referendum for 30 days starting June 7th to replace the Pacifica Foundation's bylaws with new bylaws proposed by a group of Pacifica members. If adopted, significant modifications will be made to the Foundation's governance structure affecting both the national and local station boards, including how you, as a listener sponsor, are represented and can participate. To assist you in navigating the complex issues, a graphics-based voter guide can be found on elections.pacifica.org alongside the text of the current and proposed bylaws. In order to be eligible to vote, check that your membership is up to date by verifying with your station that you have contributed $25 or performed three hours of volunteer work between April 8th, 2020 and April 7th, 2021. This means that you have until April 7th to renew your WBAI membership or enroll as a new one-year voting member of your local community radio station, WBAI. This is to enable you to vote in a referendum which affects the democratic governance of our parent network, the Pacifica Foundation, as well as our local station board. A full-year membership to WBAI and the Pacifica Network is $25 or more. Please call 212-209-2950 to renew your membership or to become a new member to be eligible to vote in the upcoming referendum. Again, that phone number is two 2- Two two zero nine two nine five zero. You can also go to our donations website, give to WBAI.org, and pledge that way. Many thanks. This is listener-sponsored, locally-controlled WBAI New York. Activist Sharon Salam speaks out for WBAI.
7: We should be moving forward, collecting the funds that we need to make sure that our station is whole and that it can do its job as it has done for me in the past. When all of this stuff happened to me many, many years ago in 1989, I didn't get... Very many opportunities to speak out in regards to the wrong that was done to my son and the other boys in the Central Park Jogger case, as it was called at that time. Very few people stepped up, yes, Like It Is was there, WBAI was there, and a few others. Majority of those stations that let people like myself speak and tell them what was going on on the other side, those stations are gone. If we lose WBAI, where do we go to get our words out? Where do we go if you've been arrested unjustly? Where do you go if someone's taken your children unfairly? Where do you go to seek justice? We must keep this station alive. Yeah. Yeah. Alive. Right WBAI. Right no justice,
0: this no is way. listener-sponsored, locally-controlled WBAI New York.